I like to exercise every morning. And one of the exercises I do, uh, one of the regiments I do, is a stability disc. I, um, I had to really search to find out what that was called, but it's the thing you stand on, and, it, and it's filled with air, and it wobbles all around. You just try to stand on it with one feet and, and uh, stay afloat as, as well as you can. My, my goal was usually 20 seconds, but I've exceeded that now, and uh, I feel pretty good about that. But um, I usually don't know which way I'm going to fall on it, and it's not a big deal. It's, it's not a matter of life and death. But um, sometimes it is a big deal. Uh, sometimes losing your balance can have serious ramifications. I used to be an arborist, and uh, I remember I was up in a big, huge, massive oak tree. The limbs went way out into infinity. And uh, there was, it was so big, we had like three or four guys in this one tree. And I was climbing way out. I was walking. You, you rope up in the, in the top, and you walk out on these limbs. And I was walking way out on this limb with a pole saw. <clears throat> and uh, I lost my balance. And uh, I fell. I was roped off, but like instead of falling down on the ground, I swung and fell right into the base of the tree. Right, right into the trunk, and right in my back, and that hurt. So that that was a little, a uh, little more serious. Um, but so it is concerning our balance in the Christian life. Sometimes it doesn't matter a whole lot, but other times it gets pretty serious. Originally, God gave us stability in the garden, a good balance. But when Adam fell, it threw everything off kilter. So, Proverbs 4.27 states, Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. We're like pendulums. We tend to swing from one, one side all the way to the other. When we notice something like in Christendom that we think is awry, we tend to back up from that and we keep backing up so far, we run into a wall the other way. We go from legalism to worldliness. We can go from the sovereignty of God, man's responsibility. We can, we can get all these to an extreme when we're trying to make corrections in our own mind or as a church. Uh, we can steer so far away from Arminianism, we can become hyper-Calvinists. Even in the, the doctrine of Christ... We can try to protect the deity of Christ so much, we, use, we lose the humanity of Christ. I've seen that. It's a reactionism. We can uh, react of a mentality of works to grace, but then we reject works. They're all, they all come into an error if we go to an extreme. So are we doing that as a church? Are we doing that as individuals? Is there any area in your life or your thinking that you're doing that in an extreme. It's something we constantly should be on the watch for. Jesus says watch, because we're prone to it. It's something in my studies on Sermon on the Mount that I couldn't help but consider this tendency in my own life and in the life of other Christians, especially when I came to the beatitude of purity of heart. 
We shun the doctrine of Christian perfection, Christian perfectionism, and rightly so. But do we and are we reacting, backing away from that so far that we are in danger of falling into another extreme, at least in our thinking? But our thinking affects our life. Tonight, I'd like to help us find that balance concerning the way we think about our own hearts. It's important that we think scripturally, keep that balance. I discussed this subject uh, with Pastor Jim. I was just going to reject this whole section, but he encouraged me to, uh, to pursue it. So I thought I'd approach it more as a, as a Bible study. I said um, tonight, um, not that we're all going to be contributing during the, the teaching, but afterwards, hopefully, um, and like I said, I'm going to be using a lot of scripture. I'm going to be running through it, trying to get that space of time at the end. So excuse my uh, running, as it were. Um, just a, a quick reminder of what we were looking at in purity of heart. Purity of heart, we were looking at an undivided, a single-mindedness, uh, a heart with, of integrity, true righteousness, pure, a pure motive, a true inward holiness without deceit. It's not hypocrisy. It's without uh, hypocrisy. It's not just outward appearance, but the inward heart that God looks at. Um, example, I, I was thinking of an example of that um, when uh, Pat and, and myself, we, we visited my grandfather once. This is way years ago. And, uh, of course, Pat, she was, like, trying to help and everything, and she got a hold of my grandfather's cup, my co- his coffee cup, and she cleaned it out really good. And the thing is, my grandfather got upset about that because he wanted the inside of his coffee cup black. He would just rinse the thing out or not even rinse it out. And there was something about that blackness in the cup, I guess, that gave it a, an extra oomph. And, <laughs> but you see, it was dirty on the inside, but it was, it was clean on the outside until Pat got to it. But it's, it's that whole idea of, of that you can be clean on the outside, but, but dirty on the inside. Um, I brought up a scripture in the book of Jeremiah, and it's a familiar scripture in, in uh, chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And I'm going to pose a question to you again. Is your heart deceitful above all things and desperately wicked tonight as a Christian? I ask you, does this apply to us as newborn Christians? Well, if it does, in its original application, then I would question if the blessing of the pure in heart in Sermon on the Mount applies to us. Blessed are the, poor in, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If we don't have this purity of heart, shall we see God? So there's a little dilemma there, and this is what I wrestled with. So again, keep, the, keep in mind that scripture and I'll be, be asking that question, as it were, throughout. We had it up there on the screen. Is my heart desperately wicked above all things? Is, is my heart deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? In other words, is it hopelessly wicked? That means. So what takes place, first of all, in a true Christian when he's born again? First, by the new birth there's been an infusion of a holy nature. We're going to look at four areas briefly, but then I want to look 
uh, mostly at the first area. So the first area is, by the new birth, there's been an infusion of a holy nature. Secondly, there's been an impartation of a saving faith that unites the Christian to Christ. Thirdly, there's been a purging of his conscience by the blood of Christ. And fourthly, there is a continual operation of the Holy Spirit in sanctification. I'd like to focus again on that first, first one, imparting, um, or should I say, that the new birth, there's been an infusion of a holy nature mostly. The other ones you'll see as we go through the scriptures throughout. <clears throat> again, I'll be asking that preliminary question. Does it apply to us, Jeremiah 17, 9? John Flavel states in his work on the heart that a lot of you are familiar with, and you've probably even done studies uh, in that book. He starts his whole work with this. He says, The heart of man is his worst part before it be regenerate and the best part afterwards. A couple of sentences later, he states, The greatest difficulty in conversion is to win the heart to God, and the greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart with God. I'll be looking at basically eight areas or aspects of the heart of a believer or of a Christian, one that's in Christ. First, the heart as a whole, but then seven other subcategories. Sight, knowledge, mind, motives, desires, purpose, and hope. Those are all inward things in a Christian. So what happens at conversion and after conversion? Does the heart remain the same? Let's start with the Old Testament promise to Israel, which had, had its fullest fulfillment in the New Covenant. Why don't you turn to this scripture, Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. It's right after Lamentations. Ezekiel chapter 36, we'll be looking at verses 24 to 29. Again, you can read the context of this uh, in your own time. But again, this is, this is looking, this is applying, he's applying this to Israel at the time, how he's going to restore them, and the chapter also deals with how he's going to deal with their enemies, but um, it's also looking forward to the new covenant. Chap, um, chapter 36, starting in verse 24, For I will take you among the nations, from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Now here, listen to verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land and I gave that, that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. So there's some astounding things that happens in the heart of man when God gets hold of it. We continue to look at Ezekiel. You don't have to turn to these. In Ezekiel 11, verses 19 to 21, I'll skip through it. For time's sake, he says again, I will gather you people. And then in verse 19, he says, Then I will give them one heart 
and I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 to 34. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. Now remember, the mind is part of the heart. It says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the, the Lord, for they all shall know me. Do you know God now? Did you know God before? There's a knowledge that comes to the Christian about God. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquities and their sin will I remember no more. Jeremiah 32. They shall be my people and I'll be their God. There's a blessed promise there, but getting to the change of heart here. Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. A characteristic of the new heart, the fear of God. There is no fear of God before the eyes of the unbeliever. That they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them and I will not turn away from doing them good. And I will put my fear in their hearts so they will not depart from me. There's another blessing. We're prone to wander, but God's going to keep us. What does it say about the unbeliever? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God's reversed that in the heart of the Christian. The heart of the Christian seeks God. It doesn't run away from him. Matthew, we'll go to the New Testament, <clears throat> gives an, an idea of the difference here. In Matthew 12, when Jesus talks about the good tree and the bad tree, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Now, no man is completely good, but you see there's a difference there. He says, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. So that's the heart of a Christian. We bring forth good things because there's, a, there's the treasure of a good heart. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. <clears throat> In 1689, Confession says in, in the chapter 13 of Sanctification, they who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are also further sanctified, really and personally, through the same virtue, by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified. That's hope. That's encouragement. And they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of all true holiness, without which no man will see the Lord. <clears throat> now we get to the eyes, the spiritual sight. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, remember. But the eyes of a new Christian... Jesus, Jesus states to Nicodemus in John 3, a familiar verse, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, it implies the re reverse when you're born again. You can see the kingdom of God. You have spiritual eyes. 
you see. You're not ignorant as, as you were before. There's not that no, not knowing that hopeless um, deception. Is the heart deceitful above all things still as a Christian? In verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So you must be born again to have that spiritual eyesight. But if you are born again, then there's hope. There's encouragement. Luke 4, 18, when Jesus came into the synagogue and read from the book of Isaiah, which is, puts chills down your back when you read it, <clears throat> he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind. That doesn't speak of ignorance there. To set at liberty those that are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Well, you, you might be saying to yourself at this part, well, that's all fine and dandy, but I know my heart. Well, that's the point. You know your heart now. God has opened your eyes to see your own heart. That's part of the revelation. That's part of the difference as a Christian. You have a knowledge. You're not completely deceived. See, now our eyes are open and we do realize we can be deceived. All right? We can be still deceived by the devil in our own ignorance and indwelling sin. That is why we are constantly warned to watch. Keep our hearts with all diligence which is a study in itself. You see, we can still be deceived, but the problem of the danger can be much avoided with the diligent use of the means of grace that God's given us and a sober dependence on the triune God. Now, in the area of, of, of knowledge, continued in John 8, Jesus said, you, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Freedom. The truth has set you free. Let's look at the area of the mind. <clears throat> In Acts 24, verse 16, Paul, say, Paul uh, says, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense towards God and towards man. I brought this up in the men's prayer meeting. The whole thing of the conscience. But what a, what a statement. I do exercise myself to always have a conscience void of offense towards God and towards man. That's possible. If Paul can do it, we can do it. We've been enabled by, by God to do that, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and by the change of heart. <clears throat> In the mind, our direction is changed, our thoughts and our conscience. 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of what? A power and of love and a sound mind. Now, does that describe us as deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? Now, what about 2 Timothy 1.3? I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. Paul could say that. Clear conscience. Now, let's look at the motives. Our motives are changed in the heart of a believer. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says, For our ex exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. 
But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. The motives change. Our motive now is to please God. He goes on to say, nor did we seek glory from men. What a reversal. We seek the glory of God and not our own glory. Yeah, we stumble in that. Yeah, we, we talked about that in the last session. We can be hypocritical. But God can reveal that to us now. God can smite our conscience and we can have repentance given to us. And he goes on to describe, this is part of the heart change too. Affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. What a change of heart in Paul, who persecuted the church, who murdered Christians. Now he had this affection of love in in his heart for the people of God. You are witnesses, you are witnesses, and God also, how we devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. Quite a statement from Paul. Romans 6, 17, but God God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine in which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You're hearing a lot in Romans 6, and you can couple, please do that, couple to this morning's teaching with tonight's. And I'm not going to go and reference Romans 6 a lot for that very reason, but there's a lot in that. <clears throat> okay, our desires have changed. In Matthew 13, you have the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. Again, the kingdom of of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. If you think about that parable, you got, well, was that really honest to do that? But that's not the point. Um, The point is he sells all to buy that field to get that treasure, our desires have changed. Again, single-mindedness. We have that one prime desire in life, to see God, to, to, to seek God, um, to serve God, to glorify God. In the Beatitudes, again, you have that change of desire. Now you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's a motivation in that. Purity of heart, you shall see God. That's the blessing. Who wants to see God if they're not changed in their heart? The unregenerate don't want to see God. They'll hide from God. And now, in uh, Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. What a desire. Desire of the the, the regenerate heart. And we have a new purpose in our heart, in the born-again heart, in Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. There's your purpose. You have a hope in your heart now. It's not hopelessly wicked. 
you have hope in your heart. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. A good work in you, in your heart. It goes on in verse 10, that, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Sincere, sincerity, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. All this to the, is to the glory and praise of God. All we're talking about tonight is to his glory and praise. <clears throat> Continuing in the theme of hope. Whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 13 of that same chapter, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There's the capstone. There's the sealing scripture, I think, of all this. All things, we are a new creature in Christ. So Paul's writing to Ephesians says to them, Be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. I, I, I think the reason I bring this forth is I think we're going to, we can go to an extreme as Reformed Christians. It's all sin, sin, sin. Indwelling sin, total corruption. We're always talking about our sin. We're always down because of our sin. You've got to look at the other part of it. You've got to look at the good news. What has God done in your heart? You're going to be despondent. You're going to be hopeless if you don't look at that other side. If, if you'll remember in, in, in all the teachings, especially in, in the book of Ephesians, what's Paul's pattern in his epistles? First, he lays out who we are as Christians. Then he goes to what we do, what we can do. But first, it's who you are. And, and I challenge you to find anywhere in the New Testament where he calls us, where he calls you sinners. He doesn't. He addresses you as, as saints. There's a reason for that. Your thinking, your mind. Yes, in the sense that we sin, we're sinners. But Paul doesn't address Christians as that. And you might say to yourself, oh, well, yeah, but there's, there's 1 Timothy when he says, I'm the chief of sinners. But you're not taking that, the interpretation of that right if you do that. He's talking about his past life. His past life so haunted him still, the enormity of his sin, that he saw himself as the chief of sinners. No man has, has sinned as much as me, but his hope was that God can forgive me so he can forgive you. If he was still the chief of sinners, I don't want to read his epistles. Right? So we still can be deceived, and obviously we can still sin. But deceitful above all things, I would question that. I ask you, can you deduce from Scripture that your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and you can't know it? 
I would say no, but you, maybe you come to that conclusion from your own experience. That's the thing. We can base our, our, our doctrine sometimes just by our own experience. And, and sometimes all we see is our sin. Are we still struggling with sin? Yes. Does the doctrine of total depravity still apply to us? Yes, it does. Because sin affects every part of our being. But don't tilt the scales all to one side. Christ has set you free. I was blind, but now I see. Rejoice in what God has done for you and in you. Praise be to Jesus who has redeemed you. Bless God for the Holy Spirit who abides in you. Praise God for Romans 6. But will not this way of looking at ourselves promote pride? That question come up in, in your mind. It did in mine. First of all, any teaching that promotes pride is either false teaching or are you misinterpreting it. Ask yourself this, though. Is humility only in the recognition of our sinfulness? No, it isn't. Because who is the, mo- the, the, the most humble person that walked this earth? Jesus Christ. He had no sin. Humility is mostly based in submission and servanthood. Yes, humility is in our sinfulness too, but it's mostly based, if you'll see the, the humility of Christ, even the humility of Moses, who was the humblest man on the earth, it wasn't in the, in the sin, it was in his servanthood. It was in his submission to God. Let's turn to Titus 2. I'll try to wrap this up. <clears throat> Titus 2, chapter 2. <clears throat> chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. And we've looked at this a few times in, in, this, in the teaching on Sermon on the Mount. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now get a hold of this. Who gave himself for us. What does that entail? There's a lot in that verse. Who gave himself for us. That includes those 30... 33 years the pastor talked about. Three years of suffering and then suffering on the cross who gave himself voluntarily for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. His own special people. Get a hold of that. You're God's own special people because God gave, Christ gave himself for you. His own special people, zealous of good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. And then he says, further on in chapter 3, again, to speak no evil uh, and be peaceable. He says, for we ourselves were also once. And then that list that we've read over and over again. You were once that. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Now here it is, through the washing of regeneration 
and renewing of the Holy Spirit, the new birth. You're washed, you're renewed, whom he poured out on us, not just poured out on us, but he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs, you're heirs. And we're not only to think of ourselves that way, but others, each one. And I I think of of, um, how the husband should think of his wife, not to be bitter against your wife. And um, if there's problems there, to remember that she's a fellow heir. So you look at her as your fellow heir. There's something in that, the way you look at other people too, other Christians, that is. So so it's all of God. But this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And even when we were dead in sins, dead in trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, that it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. So if you look at all this and you boast in anything, you haven't, re- you haven't read Ephesians. Not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are what? His workmanship. You're his workmanship. You're being worked on. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And we have the ability to walk in them because of the new birth, because we we have a new heart in Christ. But before we were without hope, without God in this world. So we are what we are by the grace of God. We are totally dependent on God for our salvation, and we still are totally dependent as children. But behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. You're a child of God. Think of yourself that way. When you're in deep despair because of your sins, remember, you're a child of God. There's a lot in that. So, does the scripture apply to you tonight as a Christian? Is your heart deceitful above all things and desperately or hopelessly wicked? Who can know it? Well, you answer that. Let's pray. Our Father, we we thank you that it is all of grace, for we could do nothing in ourselves. And we still, Lord, can do nothing good but by your grace. So we give you all the glory, all the praise. But Lord, help us to recognize what you have done in us and let it be a glory to you, Lord, in our hearts and let us shine as lights in this world. Help us, Lord, to, to not go to one extreme or another, but keep us, Lord, in that, that spiritual, that scriptural balance, that godly balance, Lord, which is so hard to, to stay in, Lord, because we're so much fluctuating as a child, children of men. But Lord, by your grace, we can keep that balance. So we ask you in Jesus' name for this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.